Where do you go for the most important conversations in applied behavior analysis? The podcast is your source for insightful content, debate, and insights in the ABA field. Whatever your role, RBT, BCBA, C-suite, family member, or advocate, we'll get you to the heart of the meaningful issues in autism. Podcast is proudly hosted by the Council for Autism Service Providers. We are your hosts, Nagarito, Judith Urcity, Hallie Respondic, Nitesh Kumar, and Jonathan Mueller, and this is our podcast. Hey guys, Holly and Na here, two of your podcast hosts. Today's episode, we sat down with Molly from Global Autism Project, and she let us know a little bit about how the Global Autism Project was started and the current programs that they have initiated and their progress, their future goals. What else, Na? Yes, we had such an interesting conversation with Molly. She had so much to share about how the Global Autism Project started in Accra, Ghana, my hometown. As you listen to the conversation, you will learn so much more from her experiences on how to not be a white savior, about how to do it and not for, and also about how to be part of the change that she's making in the world. So please um, listen to this interesting and amazing conversation. Yeah, we could have talked to Molly for so many more hours, but we think everybody will enjoy and get a lot out of this episode. So give us a listen. Okay, so Molly, thank you so much again for having a conversation with us. We're super excited. I briefly saw you at the CASP conference. Your message was really great. And I personally went and I dove into y'all's website and was looking and I had heard about the Global Autism Project before. So it was really cool to see you there. And then now this is a pleasure. And so just to start off, who are you, Molly? Molly Olapini. I'm the founder and CEO of the Global Autism Project. Awesome. And then tell us a little bit about, for those who don't know, what the Global Autism Project is. Yeah. So we are an organization that's been around now for close to 20 years, which always feels slightly unbelievable to me. The closer we get to 20 years, the less I believe it or it feels like it. And we are, what our work is, is to build capacity for autism services worldwide. So we partnered with organizations now in 20 countries so far to work with them to provide training in the clinical aspects, the operational aspects, as well as, of course, awareness and outreach as well. Molly, we got to meet at a conference, actually, I think shortly before the CASP one. And one of the things I'll never forget, you came up to me after a session and we instantly had this connection around being overseas. You know, I grew up, my parents were in the Foreign Service diplomats, right, which, which taught me, one, that service is noble, and two, there's this big wide, beautiful world out there where people are have different cultures, they speak different language, and that's something to be freaking celebrated, right? And, and we connected on this, but tell me, how did you get so passionate about international education and exposure to the rest of this world? Yeah, it's a great question. So my parents were like the opposite of foreign diplomats. Um, they were born and raised in Dublin, New Hampshire. My mom a few towns away, but my dad, Dublin, New Hampshire. I grew up on the same plot of land as my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, my grandfather, and my dad. And so really, and had my first passport when I moved to Ghana in 2003. I'd been working with a family in Seattle, Washington. Part of the reason I took the job is because I knew they were moving to Ghana. Sure, I can do this ABA therapy thing for a year. Little dead end because they're moving to Ghana and where would I go when they do that? So it was 20 years ago that I took on that dead end job. <laughs> um, and about a year into working with that family, I moved to Ghana with them. Um, and as I said, that was my first passport. You know, I always think about when they invited me to move with them and I said, oh, yeah, sure. I said, you know, would I need anything like a passport? And I'm sure they were just like, oh, what have we done? <laughs> Who are we bringing with us to live in Ghana? And so, I, you know, I got there and I think Ghana in a lot of ways, specifically Accra, Ghana, where I was living, specifically in the neighborhood, the area that I was in, I just started getting to know neighbors and having conversations with people. And people started coming to my house looking for the lady who knew what autism was. And I think, you know, it's funny because I've since in the pandemic, I've actually returned to New Hampshire And I'm noticing that where I grew up and live now is a place where people help each other and people rally. And, you know, someone's bike got stolen the other day and there were like four offers for like, oh, she can have my old bike or we'll help look for, you know, and it's like 
somebody's house floods and people are just spontaneously posting on Facebook, like, you know, I have a wet vac and a, and a pair of hands. I'll come help you. No one's even asked, you know? So I think having that upbringing and then just going to a place where people are looking for the lady who knows what autism is, they're looking for help. And I was sort of like, oh yeah, sure. Yeah. What do you need? <laughs> you know? And I met an incredible person who had started an autism center and started just volunteering my time there as much as possible. You know, my first thought was this will be so great. I can learn about how they address autism here in Ghana had zero context for what was happening culturally for the stigma around autism uh, and learned a lot really quickly. And when I was looking for services to help support the center in Accra, Ghana. All I could find were other people around the world looking for the same thing. So I started to really get intrigued, like what is happening outside the U.S. in the year 2003? So in 2003, that's, um, that's a small world. So I was living in Tanzania at that time and totally separate story. But one of the things I think we think about being Americans, especially because we don't necessarily, we, I mean, we might study different languages in high school, but we haven't been steeped in other cultures. And so when we think about going overseas, there's this idea of, wow, it's going to be a huge culture shock. And yes, that happens. But I, I'll never forget that the culture shock for me and was not in moving to Tanzania. It was actually the reverse culture shock of coming back to the U.S. And I'll never forget, like when I walked into a grocery store for the first time after almost a year of living abroad, and there were more options of salad dressing than literally the all of the food options in Arusha, Tanzania's biggest grocery store. So like I it took me so long to get over that reverse culture shock. Can you like chat us through both your personal experience with with that culture reverse culture shock and then for participants in the program what they might experience? Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that because I remember coming back in 2000, I guess it was 2004, I came back for the ABAI conference and I spent the summer in Seattle fundraising, building this organization. And I hadn't been on an elevator or an escalator, which now in Ghana, you will be on elevators and escalators, but I had not been on an elevator or an escalator in over a year at that point. And I remember getting on an elevator and there was a TV in the elevator. I had also not really, you know, I hadn't been watching like the 24 hour news TV thing either. When you turn the TV on in Ghana, that, that's not what was there. And so I remember very clearly being in the elevator and there was a TV and I was like, what is happening? And again, you know, listen, the world's changed in a lot of ways. My last visit to Ghana was in 2008 and I was on elevators and escalators and <laughs> it was a different place. But when I was there in 2003, um, yeah, it occurred to me, even in the airport, I hadn't been on an elevator or an escalator. And so, as you mentioned with participants in our program, we have people travel internationally and we talk a lot about culture shock and we actually liken it. We do this kind of cool activity and we liken it to falling in love. It's like things are a little new, you have a, you're a little nervous, you're a little excited, you're not totally sure how you feel. And so I think it just creates a different context when we think about going into a culture and we sort of shift that feeling of being uncomfortable and things being new to being exciting and being new. And we absolutely, you know, preframe and prime all of our members for when you come home. <laughs> you know, like Going is not necessarily the biggest shock. You expect to be, quote, shocked, right? And we invite you to create that for yourself as falling in love wherever you are. And when you come back, you're just sort of like, what is going on in this place? <laughs> and that's what folks who've traveled with us have said as well, that it is, it's when they come back that that's really, that's really the shock for them. Of course, they've just had this incredible two weeks. It's only two weeks, but they've had this incredible two weeks and with their team and with the team there. And then of course, there's also the culture of autism centers themselves, right? And what we deal with here with billing and insurance and staff turnover and all those sort of things currently don't exist. And billing and insurance doesn't exist, which is not necessarily a great thing, but the staff turnover and the frustration and leadership isn't listening. You know, you don't, you just don't have those conversations internationally. Everyone's really working together really for the kids and to create something that just doesn't exist yet. <laughs> You know, one of the things I realized as you described preparing people for coming home is it sounds like participants have this just transformational experience and no surprise. 
then when they come home, it's almost like the rest of the world has continued on and people might ask a perfunctory, at least this is my experience, people ask a perfunctory question like, oh yeah, how was that trip? How was Ghana? And and then you're like, oh, I, and it's, you almost struggle, like make sure you tell them everything that that's like how you are changed. But how do you prepare them to self-reflect on an experience with this idea that it, it can it could feel like they they have moved on, whereas you have in your life when you come back home. Yeah, so that that is a great question, and you know it's something. So we knew that traveling internationally had its inherent challenges, its inherent you know kind of unique experiences, and it really I think was probably we've been running our the organization's been around for close to twenty years. We've been running Skillcore since two thousand twelve. So I so I say like Skillcore is ten minus two years old because of the pandemic, but ten years ago we started, but minus two. And one of the things that we really learned in over the last kind of four or five years is that this is really a deeply transformational experience for people. They come home, they start businesses, they enter relationships, they leave relationships that, you know, there's a whole lot of transformation that kind of happens after they've had this experience and it happens all the way through. And so about four or five years, we started to really celebrate that and really embrace that and to create more programming around the personal transformation aspect that's sort of inherent when you travel anyway, but to really bring that home for people. And so creating that transformation and that container for transformation has been incredible. And it is also the reason that we created our leadership summit because there is sort of this, you had this great experience with these great people and no one around you understands or knows. And so we're like, you can come home. You know, we have about 60% of our people do a second trip. And I think it's like, I think it's like 20% do a third. And then we have people who've traveled eight or nine times with us. They've become trip leaders and things like that because it really does just, it's just such a special experience for them. And I was just in Ecuador with the team for a leadership summit. And I was like, why, why are you here? <laughs> you know, like it's a pandemic. Why'd you come to Ecuador with us? Why'd you raise the money? Why are you here? And they were like, I get something here that I cannot get anywhere else in the world with the Global Autism Project. And I was like, all right, good enough for me. And then, so I know that the Global Autism Project, you guys have several programs within it. Can you speak to, cause I'm a BCBA myself, so is Nah. Sorry, Jonathan, not to leave you out. Unless you recently got your BCBA, Jonathan, and didn't tell me about it. But, but you know, as a BCBA or another clinician, what does it look like and who, you know, signs up for these programs? What are the different avenues? I'm genuinely interested. <laughs> You're like, I would like to apply. I'm so glad you asked because we actively recruit for professional and for neurodiversity. Um, we have found that the best teams are when we have people all working as equals on a team, whether a BCBA, BCBAD, an RBT, neurodivergent person, a self-advocate, a parent, a sibling. Our requirement is that you have personal or professional experience with autism. And so because that's who creates our team, it also creates this transformational working experience for people where they get to see, you know, oftentimes, and I, I tell my dear BCBAs, I say, listen, no offense, but it is quite possible on this trip that our best ideas are going to come from RBTs. These are people who are new to this field. And if we can have ideas from people who are new to this field, it's going to make a huge difference for us in our teaching, our accessibility, right? There's that famous Lindsay article that's like, get away from jargon, speak in plain English. That is not the title of that article, um, but you can probably Google it with that. You know, and that becomes even more important when we're working across cultures. We had a program in India and we had tried for many years to start a vocational program. And the one of the directors of the school, she's incredible. She's also 86 plus, according to her. So I'm not sure exactly how old she is. I've known her for eight years and she's been 86 plus every year. So she's at least 86 years old and phenomenal. But her understanding and her context was that the autistic population is uneducable and they cannot do the vocations. So we said, okay, got it. They're uneducable. They cannot do the vocations. Tell me more about that. And she did um, and explained why they couldn't learn the vocations. And so we had somebody who had worked in a group home and she said, what if we just call it the transition academy? 
What if we just, we just drop the word vocation? That's obviously what's happening. And it's like it hadn't even entered anyone's mind <laughs> to just not call it vocations. And so we just called it transitional academy. It was just how you transition from being a kid to being an adult. And now the autistic, you know, they're getting ready for Diwali in a couple of months in India. And the autistic students there, they do all kinds of things. They make masala, they make candles, they do all these vocations and crafts and they sell them. And it's incredible. And without having, you know, it's not like we went to the 86 plus year old director of the school and said, here's all the data. Absolutely, they're educable. What are you talking about? These kids can learn. Look at the data and look at the evidence. We just said, okay, got it. The word vocations seems to be creating an issue. And it was like three trips where they tried to implement this vocational training. And it was somebody literally who works in a group home, personal or professional experience with autism. And we said, that is not a bad idea. And it worked. And we have all kinds of examples like that. So Molly, are you running transformational programs or y'all building a community? Both. <laughs> Tell us more about, cause that's, I think, and that's, I didn't fully appreciate the Global Autism Project, especially those, like those percentage return rates and how you're encouraging people to work together. But tell us a little bit more about how you build this sense of community. Well, honestly, I think the way that we build this sense of community is that we all have a shared vision of a world where every autistic person is respected and embraced by their community. And that's something that we can get behind all over the world. You know, it's funny because we were at our global summit in Bali, which is amazing. And in 2023, we're hosting it in Rwanda. So just plan accordingly. Rwanda in East Africa is one of the coolest countries I've ever been to. I love it. And somebody said, you know, my gosh, like, how do you get all this buy-in from all these people around the world? And buy-in is something we all struggle with buy-in, right? And it was like, in some ways, the most ludicrous question to me, because I was like, what do you mean buy-in? It's their own centers. It's, a, it's their own vision, like buy-in. And I realized that at the Global Autism Project, we skip buy-in altogether and we go straight to ownership and we go to co-creation and what we're doing globally is what they want, what their priorities are in their community. We have a Venn diagram to determine what we're going to be teaching on trips. And one circle says our priorities and one circle says their priorities and one circle says sustainability. And it's where those three overlap that that's the target. That's what we're working on on that trip. And, you know, you can actually use those three circles in any family ever. <laughs> you know, it's like you don't have to be in another culture. I think when we go into another culture, we're very mindful and we're very thoughtful and we ask questions and we don't want to say something that might come out wrong. But when we go into a family, we're like, oh, hey, I'm here. I know best. Here's what we're going to do. Let's get started. It's like, wait a minute, we can actually have this same level of humility and of respect for the culture of a family as we do for the culture of a, of a country or in a community. So that's what we do. Just a cool shared vision. <laughs> Molly, it's always such a pleasure talking to you. I feel like we can talk to you for three hours and still keep going. We've had a ton of interesting conversations and one thing I so appreciate about you and the Global Autism Project is the initial strive to just go to ownership because most of the countries you're dealing with and most of the world had gone through colonization at one point or the other. In full disclosure, I was born and raised in Ghana, West Africa. I'm proudly Ghanaian. Ghana used to be a British colony, so we still carry all that trauma and all that pain and all that weight you can literally feel it in the soil. Those things don't just disappear. And the remnants of, of it still exist. And it ties all the way back to the history of slavery in the United States, right? The, nothing is excluded. It all weaves through. So knowing that colonization is still, and colonialism is still a problem that plagues our world beyond racism, I love how intentional your project is and how intentional your leadership are in making sure that when you're going in, you're going in with humility of, yes, we are experts at treating autism, whatever an expert is at that, um, or we have training in it, but 
the saying goes, right? You've, when you meet an autistic child, you've met one autistic person, individual, right? When you meet an autistic individual, you've met one autistic individual. And I love how you go in and embrace the cultural piece of it and the reality of the culture and meet people where they are instead of going in and saying, nope, you're wrong, you're wrong, this is the right thing and this is the answer, which is typically what most people coming into communities to help do. So um, thank you so much for that. I, want, I wanted to highlight that for the listeners to know how impactful that is to the community. So thank you. Oh, thank you. With that said, if you could dream big, if you could get everything you want and accomplish everything you want for the Global Autism Project, what would that look like? Well, that's what we're working on right now. I love that if you could dream big. I can. <laughs> I called it the Global Autism Project at age 23. I remember someone said, how are you going to go all over the globe? And I was like, well, start in Ghana, go all over the world. You know, and I just really felt like action creates clarity. So we'll just start doing things and we'll see what happens. And listen, don't think that we've always done this completely 100% right, okay? Like you don't spend almost 20 years doing everything right every single day, every single moment. And it actually took me a long time to embrace that as the only organization trying to do this, we're probably gonna mess up sometimes. You know, I'd be like, we messed up, we should stop. I'm like, oh, I don't think we should stop though because I got that one email from that one mom and we could probably help. So really the big dream, the big vision I think now is to create, and we're working on this as we speak. I'm really glad you asked. Create a way for all autism organizations working even within the U.S., but certainly outside the U.S., create a way and a mechanism, a container for them to feel connected to each other. I'm hosting these roundtable discussions right now with people working outside the U.S., and the biggest missing for them is community. The biggest missing for them is an example of what's possible. I was just talking with someone in South Africa who is dreaming of creating something like what our partners have built in Kenya and Rwanda and Tanzania. And I was like, oh my gosh, like get on a plane. <laughs> you know, like, can you, can you get on a plane? Can you go there? Can you see them? It's like, she, she just didn't even know they existed. What if they met every week on a Zoom call? And what if meeting at different centers around the world was part of it? Skillcore has, and I'm glad you brought up the, you know, colonization. I think when you look at Skillcore, it does feel like us going to help them. When you're part of Skillcore, you see that it is far more collaborative, that one of the very first things we teach skill core people is about white saviorism and the history of colonialism and how that's all, kind, you know, and how that shows up in international work. But one of the visions for the future of skill core is that partners from other sites are part of those teams and visit other sites as well, which we're really excited about. So having, you know, having our partners from Ecuador go to Kenya, having our partners from Kenya go to Poland, having, you know, just having that and vice versa, you know, and shifting around because I think through this organization, through what we've built, through the experiences, the global summit we hosted in 2019, the regional summits we're hosting, we can really start to create more collaborative experiences just for the whole world to participate in. Hey, you know, I'm all about community, so you're speaking my language. It's one thing to do this in Ghana or in Kenya or in one place. The reality is we are all in the trenches together. Even as a provider here, it can feel so lonely. And thank God for organizations like CASP that have created a beautiful family for me that I could have I didn't even know could, it was possible, right? I didn't. I couldn't imagine how possible it is for people who, quote unquote, are competing in the same market to come together and really collaborate and problem solve and share and hug each other when it's tough. I mean, we, we go through it with, with each other. So thank you for creating that community on a bigger scale. I think it will, it will help us all be better. Um, it will help us all do better, be better, and for the better of the individuals with autism we serve. Molly, you're a TEDx speaker. So we're like, we're the presence of greatness. And your topic was that doing for others doesn't help. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Um, it's something I'm a little passionate about. Hence, I did a little TEDx on it. So in four words, we like to do with and not for. Do with and not for the community and do with and not for. And that is my style of leadership as well is to do with and not for and to co-create. And it's interesting to me because in, to me, it really feels like the laziest, easiest way <laughs> to lead an organization and the laziest, easiest way to change the world is to do with and not for. You know, when we're doing things 
for others. It removes their agency in the situation. And when we leave, we're somehow surprised that the thing is no longer happening. When we do with, like we spoke about earlier, we create ownership. We co-create. We create things that actually work. You know, I was thinking about this recently because I was by the office in Brooklyn and they're changing all the parking around and it's just totally ridiculous right now to accommodate for construction. And the super of our building, his name's Jose, and he's like, man, they should have just done da, 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 da. And I was like, man, they should have just walked around and asked Jose. He's out there every day. <laughs> you could have just asked Jose how to fix the parking on this block. He knows. He watches this every day. He deals with the delivery trucks. He's lived there for, I don't know, 15 plus years, maybe like 50. I don't, I don't know how long he's lived there, you know, <laughs> like, and he's like, literally, you could just walk around and ask Jose. And instead, they've invested all of this money into doing all of the math to figure out the best way to handle the parking and the delivery truck drivers are upset and the people who live in the neighborhood are upset. And it's like, this is kind of a lazy thing, but you can just ask the people who deal with this every single day. <laughs> and I do the same thing with my staff. I'm consistently getting feedback from them. I do a weekly report that they fill out every single week that's like, hey, what's really going on in your world? And it's, it's all about co-creating and co-creating the next iteration of what we're doing. But yeah, I really, I really believe in doing with and not for, you know, it's, they say you, what is it? You give a man a fish, he eats for a day, you teach him to fish, he eats for a lifetime. I think you should ask the person if they're hungry and if they like fish. <laughs> I love that. And like to give you just a quick example of this, and this happened um, in Philly, I was part of the Mennonite community for a while and up in North Philly, um, or was it West Philly, somebody wanted to help with because people had to go a mile to wash their clothes at the laundromat. So they decided, oh, the solution is buy a washing machine. Except they didn't calculate that laundry detergent was expensive and not everybody can afford that individually. They can afford to buy a cup at a laundromat, but not a whole container of laundry detergent. And the washing machine sat there and it sat there and it sat there because nobody could afford a whole gallon of laundry detergent. So I just love the concept of asking people what they need. There are a lot of smart people in the world. Just because somebody cannot speak English doesn't mean they are not intelligent. Like there are a whole lot of incredibly intelligent people all over the world. And all it takes is asking someone, what do you think? And having that human respect of thinking that they know what they need and they don't need you to tell them what they need. So thanks so much for making that a point. I love that that's an example from West Philadelphia. And I nearly broke into like in West Philadelphia, born and raised. <laughs> it's like, I can't even hear West Philadelphia. But anyway, side note. Um, anyway, West Philadelphia. But I love that example because there's examples all over the world, right? There's like, they built a well in the village so the women wouldn't have to spend all this time going to the river. And the women are like, man, I like going to the river. That's my time off during the day. You know, like, that's my socialization. I love doing that. What, like, why'd you build this for me? So it's just this idea of thinking that we know what's best. I get it. We want to help. And it's also, and we're, and we're taught, right? That helping is good. And there's some incredible literature, you know, when helping hurts is a, an incredible book. And there's, there's a lot of great books about how just going in and doing what you think is best is not going to make the difference. And if you look at the budgets of international development and international aid, and you look at how much money was given to build capacity and how much money is still given to build capacity. You're like, are we going to build, like, is there capacity now? Like, is this like, what do we mean by capacity building? So it's just, it's part of the reason that we've just, we've always done everything with an eye towards sustainability, you know, and really what, what our organization does is provides the training and the coaching and the development and the community so that that autism center is running and it's, it's its own business. These are businesses around the world, just like you all have, you know? So it's pretty cool. Molly, as you described that quote unquote timeless expression about fish, it, it recalled, um, I think it was um, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who, um, you know, the, the author of The Little Prince, who said something to the effect, like, if you want to, um, to build a ship, I'll butcher the quote, but if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood and divide the work and give orders instead teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. I feel like what you're doing is teaching 
yes, maybe others around the world to yearn for that vast and endless sea, but you're almost more so doing it for your participants. And I'm, I'm curious, like, have you reflected on who quote unquote benefits or is transformed or the, the people whom you're serving or the participants on the trips? Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I was just doing an orientation for our July trips a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that we have to sort of let people know is it's okay for you to grow through this experience. You may very well go to Nairobi, Kenya and learn more than you feel like you gave. And that gives our partners in Nairobi, Kenya, the experience of teaching other people as well. It's this very kind of even exchange where both sides feel like they got more than they gave, you know? And I think it does, it creates, you know, people are like, but I'm there to help. I'm, I'm there to teach. And it's like, you are going to help so much by being the student in that classroom. You are going to make a huge difference by coming in with humility and wanting to learn from them and wanting to see what they've built and wanting to see what they've created. And you will become a better therapist <laughs> if you go in not just wanting to help fix change. You know, our whole thing, and you said yearning for the sea, and I think that's great. And I think they yearn for the sea and that's what has them reach out to us. It's like they get this little glimmer. And I think what our organization is able to do by connecting them to community, and that's really the biggest thing I think we do in the world and some of the most vital work to do in the world, don't get me started, but is really just illuminating and shining the light over like, look at the sea. And here's, here's the sea happening in Northern India. And here's the sea happening in West Africa and East Africa and really showing them, you know, listen, if this is possible in this community, this is possible in yours. So many centers around the world are looking at like one specific center in the U S they're like, I want to build that here. And it's like, or you can create what works for this community. <laughs> And so by seeing what works for communities all over the world, it's allowed them to, to create that. I think it's something so innovative and pivotal that you guys are doing for even, I'm thinking about, you know, you talked about it being a transformational experience for the people going on it. And after we've talked and I've listened to you, it makes so much sense, you know, thinking about, you know, what you said, doing with and not for. And I know that you guys go to these different countries, but then I'm also thinking about how much that that experience is benefiting those clinicians that are ultimately coming back to the United States, because I think as a BCBA, you know, we're taught to think about the social significance and to program for generalization and all of these different things, but it's different and the target's different whenever we have somebody you know, leaving their country and coming into the United States. You know, we know the United States. So I think it pushes the clinicians even more to dive deeper and to ask the important questions. And then those clinicians are having that experience and coming back. You know, I know there's a large percentage that come back and do those trips, but then also our community and our practice is really benefiting substantially without even really, I mean, talk about generalization without even really targeting it. It's very pivotal here. I think it's like such a really great concept, obviously for the target, for the globe, but then also just the most close in proximity. It's just like, dang, I wonder, you know, the, there's these amazing clinicians that are just coming out of the program, I'd be so excited to have somebody apply at our organization with that experience. I'm so glad you brought that up. So we realized that around, I guess, around 2017, 2018, that people were coming back and they were often getting promotions at work. And I had people's supervisors and bosses calling me and they're like, what did you do to this person? Like, I knew she had potential, you know, and like, I reluctantly gave her the time off. Now I'm like, oh, please travel with them again. She's like, she came back, like she's doing this, she's doing that, she's brought this back. And we very freely share everything that we do. And we invite people and encourage people to take some of the tools that you've learned from the field, you know, that Venn diagram, some different frameworks that we teach, like, 
please bring them back to your center. You know, please bring back this spirit of doing with and not for. And they do. And it's incredible. And so many people travel with us. And then, like I said, they come back, they get promotions, they start their own companies. You know, it's really my deepest regret with SkillCore is that we didn't do a proper study of where do you go after SkillCore? Because I know anecdotally, it's really amazing <laughs> what people are up to and what they're doing. But yeah, it definitely makes a difference for the clinicians. It also, you know, like I said, we recruit for professional diversity. And we've had a number of RBTs travel with us that they were going to, you know, be an RBT and then maybe go to nursing school or be an RBT and maybe do this thing and maybe do that thing because they saw the role of a BCBA in their company and they were like, no, no, I'm good. I'm just going to do this RBT thing for a year or two and I'm out. And now one of them is a BCBAD. Um, several of them are BCBAs because they traveled internationally and they saw what this work could really look like. And they met other people and, you know, they were able to see people who looked like them in roles. We've had a lot of situations where RBTs have not ever met a black BCBA. And then a black BCBA is their trip leader and they're like, oh, that made a difference for me. You know, and so there's that piece as well that's that's just happening just by exposing people outside of their communities or outside of their, you know, just outside of their companies. So that's been a very, very cool thing. But they definitely come back as well-trained clinicians in, in that stuff that's missing, right? In that soft skills and that leadership and that conversation and yeah. Molly, it feels to me like our world would be a better place if we moved from sort of the one-way megaphone and assertions to just being more deeply curious about others. And certainly in your program, people are self-selecting, right? They're curious about the world. How do we develop that sense of curiosity in our field back here at home? So everyone is banging down the doors of the Global Autism Project. <laughs> That's a great question. I'm glad you said curiosity because I learned pretty quickly in Ghana. I was legitimately curious about some of the theories about what caused autism. I was brand new in the field. I also, I was like, do you know, do you know? Um, you know, I was legitimately trying to find out and I learned some pretty interesting beliefs in Ghana. Na, na can probably imagine some of them. One of the questions I was commonly asked was if the kid's parents had had a big wedding. And I was like, oh, I, I'm not sure. I haven't asked. I haven't thought to ask. And what I learned is that if you had had a big wedding, there's a good chance you invited somebody who didn't like you, who may have put a curse on your family. And so now you have this child, you know, and there were all kinds of other explanations. And I was truly just curious, especially when you're asked that question three or four times and you're like, wedding, what does wedding have to do with autism? Like I'm missing something, you know, but it's from that curiosity and not making people wrong. And as Nas said, like meeting them where they are like, okay, yeah, they may have had a big wedding. I'm not, you know, I'm not too sure. I haven't asked yet. That's an interesting question. We'll work on that, you know, and just really, yeah, nah, see your hand up. Oh, Molly, I was going to say, it's so funny how you can have things that correlate, but it, it has nothing to do with each other. It could be that the people who are having the big weddings are the ones who are well off to afford the big weddings. And they are the ones who are well off to get diagnosis <laughs> because getting diagnosed. So I mean, what I'm saying is, yes, culturally, you can stand back and say, that's silly. That doesn't make any sense. It makes a lot of sense in the cultural context that it's in, right? It doesn't make it right, but you get the point. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's so important, right? It's like, it doesn't make it right. And my job is not to make it wrong, right? Like what good is it going to do for me to go argue with this person about big weddings or even to, even to inform them or even to say like, oh, I have some literature. That's not what causes it. Also, 20 years ago, I was like, don't know either. <laughs> you know, like there was no great research into what's causing autism. 20 years ago, just to, you know, age myself here, we were like 30 years away from refrigerator mother syndrome. We were 30 years away from autism's caused by mom going to college. So autism's caused by mom going to college is not that far off from you had a big wedding and someone put a curse on you, in my opinion. You know, it's like it, it makes about that much scientific sense. So it was like, OK, got it. That's that's where we are. Good to know. Not sure if they had a big wedding, you know, and I would often just ask, you know, what does the kid like to do? You know. It's a great question, Jonathan. How do we cultivate more curiosity in this field besides 
everybody who is a participant in this field does skill core, that would like change everything overnight. Um, I'm very, I'm very convinced of that. You know, I think it really is more conversations where we center curiosity. And I think that doesn't just change the field that changes the world. And if we think about the world that we're living in, especially those of us in the US right now, the world that we're living in is an immediate, you're right, you're wrong, I'm right, you're wrong. I mean, it's just, it's so quick and it's so quick to judge. And, you know, it's like something happens and you're like, okay, which side are you on? And it's like, there's nuance here, guys. And if we can get curious about it, we may find that there's some real similarities, even though we feel like we're completely on you know, opposite sides, quote, quote. So, you know, I think really centering curiosity, getting curious to those of you listening who are, who are business owners, really being curious about your team. You know, I spoke about this weekly report that I use. It is a Google form that takes about eight minutes to fill out. And it asks questions like, is there anything going on in your life right now that you're struggling with? And it's so incredibly helpful to learn that someone's grandma's in the hospital and they've been dealing with that at work. Or it's so incredibly helpful to learn that their apartment flooded over the weekend or, you know, those little things, you know, questions like, is there anything Molly can do to make your job more efficient or effective? Like just really, just really leading with curiosity, because I think what you'll find is that people know what they need. They certainly know what they want. Um, and that's, all people, you know? And how beautifully does that translate to the very individuals, the adults and children that we serve, right? And the families that we serve. As a BCBA, we are trained. You come in, you have the answers, like go, 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 right? And you don't take two seconds to stop and say, mom, how was your night last night? What is actually happening in your life before I give you five goals that you need to take data on that we need to talk about right now, <laughs> right? get that human piece. We all, life is beautiful, but it's so incredibly hard. And you, we all have our tough periods. I don't know when yours is and when mine is till I ask, right? So um, I think I have learned something from this and it's something I believe in, but I'm even more convinced to keep being that way um, is to see people. We need to see each other past our roles, past our titles, past what, what we are judging the person for. We need to see people and ask them, what is going on with you? How are you? It's so simple. And how are you really? Not like, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Like, okay. All right. Well, here's five goals. It's like, no, how are you really? And, you know, and I think there is, again, not a BCBA, and I've spent a fair bit of time around BCBAs, but I think this is where things get a little tricky, where it's like, don't create a dual relationship. It's like, yes, and in, in my non-BCBA opinion, you can still bring humanity to your professional relationship. And this weekly report, it's a little bit different than one that our, that our partners use, but a number of our partners use this with the families that they work with. And it's like a weekly, it's really like, mom, how are you doing? Like you're, you know, you're up all night with this kid, you're, you know, whatever's going on. And one of the questions that I ask in my weekly report and they ask in their weekly report is, what have you done for yourself lately? And it's just a moment, you know, and that's something we actually ask out loud at our staff meeting every other week. And it really is like, you're like, well, I need to have something good. I can't be like nothing, <laughs> you know, or like I ate dinner before 10 PM last night. Like, no, like, like even if it's like a doctor's appointment, like what have you done for you? And it is for you and not others. And, you know, there's, there's just the experience. I think we're starting to see it more. We're starting to talk about it more. But the experience of parenting autistic children is can be incredibly isolating. And by, again, creating community, it doesn't have to feel as hard as it does when you're doing it all by yourself. It's always better together, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm going to take this away as something that a gift that you're giving me from this conversation. I usually always ask in my team meetings, like share a high and low or what has moved you. Or we always start our meetings off with a question, but I love making it like a weekly thing for everyone of what is going on in your life. Because guess what? Whatever happened at home, you're bringing it with you. We show up with our whole selves, not just the now who can analyze data. No. Showing up with my three kids woke up late, 
and they are right out the door when I'm supposed to be doing this interview and I'm scrambling. But I stop into five minutes to teach them a lesson of, hey, just because your brother got something, it doesn't take anything from you. It's not either or. It's not binary. When, when we open our hands up, when we open our hearts, we're not giving away. It's not, it's not a lost. It's not a one plus one equal two. No, it's a one minus one equals zero. It's one minus one and you get even more back. And just to teach those lessons, right? But I bring it all with me and we need to really see each other and really understand that when somebody's not showing up the way we think they should, maybe it's because they are carrying a very heavy weight that day. I, I really just believe that everyone wants to do a good job. Nobody shows up at work wanting to screw things up. <laughs> you know, they just, they just don't. That's just my deep belief, you know, and listen, like, I guess you can prove me wrong if you want. I also believe that all people are good. So, you know, people are like, well, what about, I'm like, I mean, listen, I go through the world believing all people are good. I get on international flights, get picked up by strangers at airports, and I've never had anything but an incredible experience. So again, causation or, or correlation, but it works for me, right? I really believe that about, about my team. I really, you know, our partners really believe that about their team, you know, working in the cultures and the communities that they're working in. They did not pick this job because it was like they saw an ad somewhere. It's like, no, they've made a decision to work with these kids who are incredibly stigmatized, who do not have necessarily the resources to support their needs. And so if you're there, I really just believe you want to do a good job, you know, and just believing everybody wants to do a good job. It's like back to that curiosity. The second something is not right, I'm not like, man, that person's getting lazy. I'm like, let me, you know what? Like they want to do a good job. So let me just get curious and see. That's awesome. Molly, thank you so much for, I think we could just go on for many more hours, but thank you so much. I think we all have so many takeaways from today and it was a pleasure to get to know more about the Global Autism Project. For those listening, where's the best place to find information or interested in the different programs or just knowing more about Global Autism Project? Where should they go? You can always go to our website, globalautismproject.org. We also are sort of a big deal on the internet, on Instagram, <laughs> thanks to my team and having nothing to do with me. But there's a lot of fun stuff posted on Instagram. We have we just had teams in the field a couple of weeks ago, and they did these takeovers during the day. And so you're able to really see what a day in the life is like, which is very cool. And then we highlight the work happening at the Parker sites on the Instagram as well. Awesome. I think I saw a post of a send-off which is really cool to see. Yeah, it's really fun. It's really, you know, I do, I miss the pre-pandemic days where a coach bus would take off from the office with like 60 skill core members or 80 skill core members at it, on it at a time. But we're getting there. We're getting, we're, we're being very cautious right now to get back carefully and smartly. <laughs> Hope we all get there sooner than later. <laughs> no, I know, exactly. I just wanted to ask, um, it sounds like, again, Jonathan and Hallie and I have been talking, we can go on for days with you, but can you share, how can we all as an autism community in the United States, parents, other individuals who are on the spectrum, who are self-advocates, clinicians, all the stakeholders involved, how can we all be part of this movement to change the world? Well, we have some very exciting things coming up in the next few months because, you know, for now, what it has taken to be part of Global Autism Project is to raise the money and do the trip and, you know, or partner with us. We're creating more experiences. We're opening up our global summit to everybody who is stakeholders, parents, professionals, everybody. We're creating more virtual experiences. So I would say follow um, the Global Autism Project online for now. And, you know, the spirit of the Global Autism Project is that we do with not for, that we engage with curiosity, that we meet people where they are. And I think, you know, whether you become part of the organization officially, you travel with us, you do a trip with us, you do a training with us, something like that, you can always sort of bring the spirit of the organization into whatever it is you're doing. Can I ask you one last question and then we'll move into the fun stuff. What do you find to be your biggest challenges today outside of the pandemic? It's an obvious one. But outside of that, what do you find are your biggest challenges that you need partners to come alongside to help with? 
One of our challenges right now is identifying service providers outside of the U.S. We, of course, have an, a number of people that we work with internationally, um, but we're wanting to connect with even more. We're wanting to connect with really everybody um, who feels alone or isolated doing this work and really, really end that. And so that's one of the things that we are we're working towards. And then... Yeah, obviously the pandemic, you know, it's interesting because yes, the pandemic has been a huge challenge and two and a half years in it's, I really see the, the, the silver lining of it. I really see the opportunity that it's created. You know, I think that having people, everybody be more comfortable online everywhere in the world has created a great opportunity for us as an organization to grow in ways we may not have. Um, and just to think about growing in ways we may not have. We haven't, we haven't had the breathing space since 2003. And we definitely, definitely got that with the pandemic, with all of our trips being put on hold for two years. So, Well, thank you so much for your time, Molly. The work you're doing is so appreciated, so impactful. And um, I feel like we are all doing our little bits in different parts of the world to make the world a better place just for everyone. I really believe the world is a better place for individuals with autism. It will definitely be a better place for all children and adults and everyone else. So thank you for being part of that work. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's so great. Not so fast. Holly has some rapid fire questions for you. <laughs> this is where it gets fun. <laughs> Okay, I know you said the fun part. I was like, I think we're done. So Molly, what would you say, so can be completely unrelated with everything that we discussed here, just to get to know you more a little bit. What is a pet peeve of yours? It is a pet peeve of mine. These are rapid. You're going to have to edit out the, the stops, I guess. I am sure I have pet peeves. My wife is right downstairs. I'm sure she could tell me. What is a pet peeve of mine? Leaving cabinet doors open. <laughs> That's a good one. I feel like so many people could relate. Well, I, my wife has been on an overcorrection procedure for a number of years, so it doesn't happen really anymore. So I forgot about it. That's funny. Whenever I think about like, what are my pet peeves? I'm like, mm, like, what would my husband say? And then they all come to mind. <laughs> and then if you were to write a book, what would it be about? If it were professionally doing with and not for over, I think the title of it would be, it doesn't have to be hard and how I've lived my life according to that. <laughs> And then last one, I think it's very apparent what your superpower would be. I just don't think maybe we've so much articulated it and said it, but just through the interview, I hear so many things like you're so far ahead of the game, like 20 years ago, I can't even like you had this idea and it's just like such a big thing. But so, so many superpowers that I think we could say about you, but what would you say is one of your superpowers? Oh, what I said. I thought you were going to ask what superpower I wanted, and that is to speak in every language all the time. <laughs> it's like, oh, I know my superpower. I want to put my order in for it. Let's see. What is probably creating community, I think, and having creating community where people feel welcome and they can come as they are. That's beautiful, Molly. And I feel like that's what we share. And I know Jonathan is the same and Molly is the same. So it's such a beautiful thing. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Molly, so much. I learned so much from this, so I really. Thank you, Molly.